Everybody, Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Toronto Blue Jays with a day off today after their... I mean, this is the maybe the most meh road trip you can have. Four and two against the very bad baseball teams. Okay, it's fine. Lucky for them that the Rangers stink to high heaven. Uh, seven and five, the Blue Jays are through the first 12 games of their 15 straight games against sub-500 opponents. Nine and six versus 10 and five which is what the difference would be between taking two out of three or sweeping the Kansas City Royals, who uh, are into town over the weekend, uh, feels miles apart. Like, feels like, yeah, 10 and 5, that's very acceptable. Sweep away the Royals, and uh, that's what the Blue Jays end up with uh, record-wise over this 15-game stretch. But, I mean, we start with Canada through to the semis of the FIBA World Cup for the first time in history. They're going to play Serbia tomorrow morning. If you want to call it morning or or maybe like tonight, tip-off is before, what, is before 4 o'clock? No, it's before 5 o'clock in the morning. A quarter to 5, tip-off on Sportsnet. And, man, w- we knew that that comeback and that win against Spain was important, but how important does it feel like it is now? feels like this Canadian men's national team w- was put in a time machine, and all of a sudden we go from... An organization, a, a, a team that has just countless failures on their resume to one that is all of a sudden the second best in the world, which I guess on paper it should have been, but they are living up to the expectations right now. We'll see what tomorrow morning has in store. Uh, Michael Grange has to get to bed, uh, bed soon to get ready for that game. He joins me now. Hello, Michael. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm very good. So, like, we know sports come down to fine margins, and, and oftentimes there's, like, a sliding door event. Like, I, I think a Tom Brady and, and the Tuck Rule game against the Raiders say that, that that's called differently, and they bow out in the first round. Like, maybe Tom Brady never happens. Like, if, if Canada doesn't come back from down 12 points in the fourth quarter against Spain on Sunday, I mean, who the hell knows? Now, all of a sudden, all is forgiven. Yeah, it really is uh, remarkable, and it kind of felt that way, just the the ebb and flow. I mean, from really stubbing their toe against Brazil, which was a good team, but Canada definitely should have handled them, um, and then putting themselves in jeopardy against Spain, not only you know having to beat the number one-ranked team in the world, but also... You know, you're you're down ten, you're down twelve. Like you really put themselves up against the wall there, and had they not been able to pull it out, it was pretty grim. You know, like I, I think ultimately you would have settled on the fact that they'd go to an Olympic qualifier next year. They would probably have most of, if most, you know, this team plus the additions of, you know, Jamal Murray or whatever. Like I, you know, I think they could, they would still be a favorite going into some some event like that, but. It, the margins are so slim. You never know who's hurt. You never know what's going to happen. Like, you just don't want to be in that situation. And that's why that loss to Brazil was so uh, frustrating because they had put themselves potentially in that situation. But um, it's really nice to have um, a player like Shea Gilgit-Alexander and, uh, you know, the right supporting cast. And they were able to get that done. And, and now it's, um, it's kind of everything people have been waiting for for at least a decade or so is happening in the space of, what, a week I have to recalibrate a little bit, honestly, Michael, because, yeah, going into that game against Slovenia, it felt like there it, there were no stakes. 
um, despite the fact that this is a very important tournament to most of the basketball-loving world, and maybe it's it's going to start to grow in, in North America, but it, it does feel like the Olympics are, are the be-all, end-all. But we're in the, the semifinals here. This is an American team that did not make the finals four years ago at this tournament. Like, obviously, talent-wise, there's... There's all the possibility in the world, and you were writing about it after game one and their victory over over France that this Canadian team can can win gold. It's just like this is all new ground for, for people who have watched this national team um, because even going back to the, making the Olympics in 2000, that was a, a miracle run. I'm going to talk to Todd McCullough uh, before the end of the show as well, uh, so that'll be fun to, to, to reminisce about that 99 game against uh, Puerto Rico in the FIBA America Cup uh, before uh, the Olympics in, in 2000, but... I don't know. Have do you think basketball fans in this country now feel like there's there's high stakes for these games, or does it still feel does it still feel like they're they're playing with house money? Yeah, I think recalibrate is a good word. I mean, there is just so much emphasis on you know qualifying for the Olympics and 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 maybe in a way even just not screwing up again. <laughs> you know, is right like it's kind of harsh, but just just not having to try and tell that story one more time and. And, you know, as I pointed out in other comments, like from a corporate organizational point of view, not trying to go explain to sponsors and everyone else, you know, why you can't get this done. So so that was a big, big factor. It was more like the downside risk was so significant had they not been able to pull it out and, and qualify for the Olympics that you didn't really give yourself much time to think about the upside potential. And that's where they are now. I mean, this is... Like I think you said, house money, um, and but it shouldn't be underestimated that winning a medal at a World Cup or potentially winning a gold medal, you know, this it could be the high water mark for this program just because it could be the high water mark for any program outside, say, the United States. Like yeah. they could go and knock off U.S. in the final should they get there, should they, if they handle Serbia, presuming U.S. gets there and uh, be gold medalists, and they could be the number one or two team in the world for the next 12 years, and they might not win another gold medal. I mean, it's just that hard to do. So, um, And it's interesting just the, the – it seems like the players get it. I think being over in that environment and being immersed in it, it's really taken on its own life form. And But, uh, you know, I think uh, basketball-wise, as fans here, it's only starting to – as you say, people are starting to go, wait a second, this, this is a giant event. They could win it, and they could make history. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty exciting. It's something that, you know, we've been waiting for for a long time. Yeah, do you think this, this tournament in this country, in, in, this, in this continent, is, is growing in, in stature? Because, like, hand up. Like, I don't, I don't have too many memories from, from four years ago, and, and part of that is, is obviously, yeah, the, the inability for, for Canada to get deep in this tournament and qualify for an Olympics. But this, like I said, like I, I, everybody keeps telling me, and that, that, that it's obvious when you hear some of the quotes from some of the players around the world, that this is, like, more important to, to many countries than the Olympic Games. Do you think... Having a moment like this for this country that, that, like, four years from now, I mean, we'll have uh, seen this team at an Olympics between now and then. But, like, do you, do, you, do you agree that maybe this tournament is more on people's radar in four years? Oh, I think it is. I mean, you know, this stuff takes time, right? And, uh, you know, FIBA doesn't do itself any favors. They, um, you know, they've been really, for whatever reason, you know, they've had the last two events in the Asian market, which is, I would suggest, is probably a big important market for them, but um, it doesn't do wonders for establishing 
the significance of the World Cup in North America, if that's important to them. So, I mean, you know, I'm not going to – you can't be mad at people who are, aren't getting up at 4 in the morning to watch games. Um, you know, and then, then it's, they're only the second cycle into this new World Cup format in terms of the windows of qualifying and all that. So, you know, it takes a little while for, you know, people who have lives to get up to speed. Um, but, you know, that's what's kind of interesting and exciting here is, is if Canada can, um, you know, can do this and make a habit of this, which I don't see why they can't. I mean, this is the level they should have been at for about a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, people will grasp on, you know, or, you know, I'm old enough. Like people didn't used to really get all excited about the World Cup of Soccer outside a few communities, and that's obviously become a super mainstream thing. So, um, you know, I don't know if the Basketball World Cup's ever going to be there. I think, you know, the Olympic basketball tournament is ever since the green the dream team anyway has always sort of had premise supremacy in at least this market maybe even globally but um you know it takes time so the first step is being in it the second step is being successful in it and you know four years from now i can guarantee you people will be a lot more knowledgeable and on top of the world cup uh and canada's fortunes at the world cup than they were in 2019 or they were in any of the years canada didn't, didn't qualify in the years before that uh, bad news, though. In four years, it's in Qatar. So, yeah, time zones is, is still an issue. But, yeah, um, they, they made it wor- uh, work of the World Cup, and I don't remember too many uh, early mornings for, for Team Canada. Um, okay, so let, let's let's look back to uh, the Slovenia game for a second because uh, Arash Madani did a great job reporting that Team Canada was trying to limit uh, SGA's minutes to around 30. He ended up playing 36. He also becomes the first player in an elimination game with 30 and 10. Like, he was money, money, money. And yeah, it, it it was pretty. I mean, the second half was it was very rarely in doubt. Um, do you think there's any pressure though from like these NBA teams from the Thunder? Do you do you think there's maybe some back channel discussions about hey, um, you you guys did it and 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 we're happy that that our young player gets this great experience, but we, we sure would like to have him give an MVP uh, this season for for eighty two games. Uh, where do you think that 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 decision-making is coming, even though it didn't actually end up playing out in fact. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's probably a reasonable amount of dialogue that goes on. Um, the reality is it's the player that drives that bus, um, and particularly in the instance of a player who's like Shea is, is in the middle of his contract. So, and, and I would also add that the player, I think, in this day and age, is also very cognizant of their the entirety of their responsibilities. So, I mean, you know, in a perfect world, yeah, you would have blown out uh, Slovenia and you could have played Shea 28 minutes. It wouldn't have been a big deal. But, you know, he's, he's played six games in, uh, you know, since August 25th. Like, it's not like a crazy schedule. Uh, there is off days. I you know they're being very careful. Canada does a really good job in terms of their overall treatment and and. Uh, the medical side of it too, like they really do run at a kind of first class. So, you know, I think I think if you're Sam Presti and the Oklahoma City Thunder, you're kind of looking there, going, "Well, we haven't been in a playoff game for a long time, hmm. and certainly never as Shea as the focal point of kind of win, win or go home type game. And if he has to play 36 minutes, <laughs> you know, in a couple of consecutive games to grow as a player, the way I think he's growing as a player before our eyes." That's probably could have been a pretty good payoff, you know. Like if they were playing like they do four games in five days, and you know that kind of, and then the, the 
training camps and the buildups were super intense, it might be a bit different. But but I think all that stuff is managed pretty carefully now. And um, you know, I think in the end, Oklahoma City's Thunder are going to get two players in, in Shea and Lou Dort who have been to the wars and figured out what it takes to play games that really, really matter at the highest level. And, and I think for a young program like that, it's going to help them. Yeah, um, that looks like uh, very much a team that's on the rise. Uh, 2018 NBA draft, Michael, uh, and Luka Doncic somehow goes third overall. And uh, somehow the Atlanta Hawks decide that, that Trey Young's a, a better uh, fit for their team than a guy that was having success against men as, as an 18-year-old in Europe. Uh, we know how that has played out. But, but I think most people viewed those two, especially in the immediate seasons after that draft, as like, oh, those are the two guys that, you know, we're looking to see their development. And then, lo and behold, you know, eight picks later goes Shea Gilgis-Alexander, 11th overall. And, uh, of course, we know the, the trade history after that. Like, is there... And and maybe you don't view it the same way I do, and and maybe it's not like a personal animus um, rivalry between Luka Doncic and Trey Young, but like, do you think there's a a fair comparison between maybe the three and that Shea would be the better bet going forward uh, throughout the course of his career? Understanding that Luka's up had a better career to this point. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think it'd be really interesting if you surveyed the league and. You know, who would be the more attractive, you know, player to center your franchise on or who would be more, um, you know, would you make that trade? I mean, I mean, there's not much to choose between them. Yeah. Um, and I could make an argument for either one. And, and you know, I, with, with Luca, I think just the sheer size of the man is just, um, you know, given all his, his, you know, he's a crazy player. He's awesome. He's huge. And, and, and I think, that's just, you know, that kind of thing is, that's an attribute that's hard to solve and, and all that. The flip side is Shea's got incredible size for a point guard. He's, uh, you know, he's maybe not quite the, maybe not quite the scorer, but I mean, I don't know. He's probably not quite the passer that Luke is, mm. but, you know, I think he's a maybe slightly better all-around defender. And, um, and you know, I think, you could make an argument that Shea's overall demeanor, um, you know, you could see the way Luca kind of gets carried away. That's become his kind of, as much as, as good as he is, the way he kind of moans and get, doesn't get back on defense and he's, uh, you know, the world's always against him. That loses you games, right? I can tell you one of the, the emphasis for Canada yesterday was every time we get a ball, off the rim, we got to go, and we got to go sometimes even on makes because we're going to be five on four because Luca isn't going to be getting back. He's going to be upset. And and you laugh, and it's funny, but it loses people games. Yeah. It loses teams games, and uh, so that's not an issue for Shea. So, look, I take Shea. Okay, how's that? There you go. I'll take Shea. Yeah. You can look up. No, I, I'm with you, man. I, I love it. I mean, it, it's a hard to pull a Canadian basketball fan today <laughs> that would would take the opposite. But it's it's hard not to. Yeah, I mean, the demeanor part is 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 so correct. Um, but yeah, we, we've seen more of Luca uh, in postseason scenarios, and we've we've seen him dominate postseason games as well. But uh, we'll we'll see going forward. Um, I feel like the, the Grizzlies played themselves so hard with the way... I mean, maybe there there was an obvious uh, divorce coming with Dylan Brooks, the way that Lakers series played up. But man, 
and I know it was so embarrassing, right? That the, the the public stuff and the and the, the white sunglasses, but pretty clearly this is the way he needs to play to be at his most effective. And when it's working, it's it's obviously extremely extremely uh, valuable to to any team. I mean, is this kind of a reminder for for people how good Dylan Brooks is, or is this another level of Dylan Brooks? I think it's maybe a, a refocusing on, you know, why he's a really good player and, and kind of, you know, I think there's a lot of self-made distractions. I think, uh, you know, I think Dylan made some of his own problems and then, you know, the way the world works, I think they got made worse for him um, just because people wouldn't leave it alone. But I would say this, if you're the Houston Rockets, and this is the what Dylan Brooks is bringing to your team next year, um, which is a kind of a low-maintenance, opportunistic offensive player who can make a reasonable amount of threes. Like, I don't think he's going to shoot the rate he shot in this tournament, you know, in the NBA. But, like, a guy who's shown in his career he can be an effective, medium-volume three-point shooter. And then, you know, you add in all the rest of it in terms of his defense and his you know, his work ethic and like Dylan, the guy who's the kind of cartoon version of Dylan is, uh, is not Dylan that you get to know on a one-on-one level. He's a good dude. People like him. Teammates like him. And, uh, you know, and as long as he's, if you're Houston and he's playing some version of what you're seeing in this tournament, you're ecstatic. Hmm. And a lot of teams going, man, maybe we should have dug a little deeper if this is what he's willing to do. Um, I think, you know, in a contract year last year, I think there was a lot of stuff going on in Memphis. And, um, you know, I don't know if you've got the idealized version of Dylan at all times. But, um, you know, what you're seeing now is pretty damn good. Um, I mean, speaking of those Grizzlies, I mean, I, and I assume John Morant is, is going to be on the court at some point. But, yeah, and Zion, you know, we'll see. Hey, maybe the, maybe there's a redraft. Are you, are you willing to say R.J. Barrett, the best of those three? <laughs> I think uh, I've always said this since the minute I've ever known RJ, which goes back, you know, since he was a teenager is he will never make your organization look bad. He will never make you as an executive look bad or a coach. He's going to always be professional. He's always going to kind of do what he can do to bring out the best in his ability. And, um, you know, it might not always be the smoothest. It might not always be, can happen at the pace everyone would like it, but you're never going to lose sleep going, you know, what's this guy going to, how's this guy going to make me look bad? And, uh, you know, and, and this is another guy. He's a great guy, good teammate, um, very, very serious about his job. And, you know, and like at the age he's in, I think he's still 23. <laughs> like, um, you know, uh, the uh, it'll be interesting, actually. Like right now it's pretty obvious, you know, that draft order seems pretty sound. But give it another tough couple of two, three years. We'll see if Zion ever is able to get on the floor. We'll see if, um, you know, I hope Ja, is, his problems are behind him. But, but that's one thing in terms of availability and grind. And, uh, you know, all the off-court stuff. You know, R.J. Bar- Barrett, is he's a pro. And I mean that in a really good way. Yep, and, and those guys at, at this point, uh, not as safe a bet to be on an NBA court. All right, uh, looking ahead. To very very early tomorrow morning. How how does this Canadian team match up against Serbia in your mind? Well, I think they match up well against every team other than the U.S. Like I do think, you know, Serbia is really good. 
Uh, I think Canada is better, you know, man for man, position by position. Um, the challenge I think Serbia presents is they're a big team. They, I think they have about five guys they play that are like 6'10-ish. And, you know, Canada's had some moments in this tournament where size has bothered them. Ironically, I think sometimes they've looked best when they've said they've chosen to not match up. And you've seen Jordi Fernandez some go with one big. He'll sit either Dwight or he'll sit Kelly Olenek and just go four, uh, you know, with four kind of perimeter-type players and take his chances. And that's worked out pretty well. And, and I wouldn't be surprised to see more of that um, against Serbia. I think what Serbia brings to the table is sort of reminiscent of what um, you saw Latvia with a little bit. You saw um, Spain with a little bit, which what France was supposed to bring is just, you know, Serbian basketball is on a different level in terms of its level of expertise. It's, you know, the, the, the commitment to playing uh, kind of a team pass first body, move bodies, move ball, move the ball. Like they just play at a really expert uh, level of that. And you look through the, their stats as a team, they're, I think they're shooting 55% from the floor as a team in the tournament, which is absurd. They're nearly 40% from three. Um, so they have all of that. They do have size. And then in Bodan Banjanovic, they have you know, a real bucket getter. And maybe that's something, an element that Spain didn't have. And, uh, you know, and I think they're deeper top to bottom than, say, Latvia was. And so I think that's why, you know, they're in the semifinals. I mean, they're, they're a really, really tough test. But, you know, I think Canada is actually getting better as this goes along. And I think, you know, one thing that between Dort and Dylan and to an extent Nikhil and even RJ sometimes, you know, if you have your one go-to perimeter punch, you know, they, they can give you 40 minutes of help, right? Like your Vodan Banjanovic is going to be facing two of the best defenders of the NBA, in the NBA or one of the best defenders in the NBA for all, every single second he's on the floor. And I think that's, I think that was a problem for Luca. I think that became a problem for, uh, for Evan Fournier and again, the French game, if you remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being a problem for Bondanovich tomorrow. What time is the alarm set for? <laughs> um, I think I have to be in studio at 3.30 a.m. All right. <laughs> um, so I'll probably, like, I guess I'll lay my clothes out the night before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Probably, I guess probably about 2.45, something like that. So, yeah. That sounds uh, good. No uh, traffic. Yeah, I, w- I, w- I would say, like, if, if I was getting up for golf, that'd be easy. <laughs> but there's no golf at 4 in the morning. So, no, this is uh, this right. is. Uh, pound that coffee as I, as I know you will. Uh, I, uh, I very much enjoyed uh, the broadcast of, of this uh, FIBA World Cup of Basketball in large part because of uh, your analysis. Grange, thanks so much for this. Thanks, and uh, shout out to everyone on that, that crew that's getting in there early, and Dan Shulman, I think, has really set the tone. He's done a great job. Danielle's been amazing. It's been great to work with Sherman and Alvin, and the behind the scenes. It's been a really fun project to be a part of because people are really enjoying the, the product, I think, uh, to to produce, so to speak. So, yeah. thank you. No, hey, no problem. Before I let you go, now that you mentioned it, like, and and thank goodness, Team Canada is still playing. Like, you guys wouldn't be doing these studio shows if if it was not Team Canada, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> but we'll, we'll let's hope it's a gold, a gold medal game Sunday. But if there if it's a bronze medal game, we'll be doing that one. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So one way or the other, we're going to get another game, and I mean, it'd be pretty cool if it was uh, Canada U.S. Yep, uh, I, and and the stakes feel ratcheted up once again after that uh, Spain game. Uh, thanks, Grange. 
All right, then. Take care. See ya. There's Michael Grange getting ready to go to work in under 12 hours' time, probably. Uh, Canada against Serbia tomorrow morning. Broadcast starts at 4.30 on Sportsnet. Okay, I have recalibrated. Because I got to tell you, the Slovenia game, I know it was tied at 50 at halftime. But Canada was pretty well in cruise control in the early moments of uh, the third quarter. It was hard to really feel like there was too much at stake there. We're at the semifinal territory here now. Canada wins tomorrow morning, guaranteed at least a silver medal at the marquee basketball event in the world. I mean, whether we've been conditioned to believe that or not, that is just the reality of the situation. The Olympics are a different deal. But this is the premier international basketball event in Canada. I think Grange is right to point out that this is the golden age of Canadian basketball, and it's been so unrealized, the talent level, that it, it does feel like once the, the breakthrough happens, it's going to be nothing but linear growth from here on out and like a bunch of gold medals, a bunch of medals going forward. But this might be it. They might be in and around semifinals, finals of major international tournaments, but maybe don't have as good a chance to win a medal, if not a gold medal, than this year. So you got to take advantage of it. All right, when we come back, so much to get to with our next guest. I mean, the U.S. Open is happening. Blue Jays are in a dogfight to make the playoffs. It is opening day, the NFL season. Talk to Adnan Verk next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 5.9 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Let's talk to our man, Adnan Verk, MLB Network, the Cinephile Podcast. What's up, buddy? Ben, always a pleasure to be with you, pal. And you're right. For the Jays, I said going into this nine-game stretch, you've got to go 7-2, and two, which they still could do if they sweep the Royals, and the Rangers will hopefully lick their wounds as far as Texas fans are concerned. But it, it sets up for what's going to be a heck of a series coming up. And before we get to that, speaking of Texas, you think of Texas, you think of Texas heat. I'm not sure about back home. Right now here in Secaucus, New Jersey, sweltering heat wave. And I'm going to offend you because I'm going to go in Fahrenheit. It's yeah. 95 degrees with the humidity. It feels like 100. So plus 36 doesn't really sell exactly how hot it is right now, but hotter than a Texas summer right now here in Jersey. Um, okay, so you, you spoke to the right person because, okay, I, I was literally in Texas two weeks ago, and nice. so, so don't come at me with your 95. I was there right in the midst of a stretch of days in Austin, Texas, of 40-plus days consecutively <laughs> in which the, the, the high temperature was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> it was out. Rageous. And that's not with the Humidex. I was just like, you walk outside and it was 100 degrees. You literally would go in the shade and be drenched in sweat being outside for, for tents. And I'm a man that sweats. I don't know how you are, Adnan, and I'm sure you've had to be outdoors. I don't know if you actually are, have you had to be outdoors in your suit today. Like if that were me, I no. would be I would be soaked. 
No, it's an excellent point you make because my car has been in the shops. I've been taking the train, which has actually been a nice throwback to the days I lived at Young and Shepherd. Mm-hmm. I take the subway south, Shepherd to uh, St. Andrew, walk 10 minutes to the score. I used to always wear my suit. So, you know, I, I, I kind of feel like it's a throwback to my days at the score. But you're right. I'm drenched. Like, I'm carrying the suit jacket, and I'm just wandering. It took me about 20 minutes to get there. I, I got on the train to take the shirt off. I'm wearing, like, the white undershirt soaked. It was <laughs> disgusting. But I'm with you because I'm big on the Humidex. Like, I love telling somebody, well, it's 89 with the Humidex, it's 120. So, to your point, the fact without the Humidex, over 100 in Texas, mm-hmm. that's legit. Yeah, it was. It was It was very legit. All right. Uh, the, the Rangers swoon is super legit. And, and yeah, the Blue Jays have underwhelmed, like I've said, but it, 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 this is a Rangers team that seemed solidly in position to win the division. Now they're just scraping tooth and nail to get into the postseason. They're also a team that, despite the Blue Jays paying into the competitive balance tax for the first time in franchise history, Rangers have the fourth highest payroll in all of baseball, but this is a, a Blue Jays team with, it feels like an expiration date on it. Like, who has more on the line as far as getting into the playoffs, Blue Jays or Rangers? I think it's the Blue Jays, and the reason why is the Rangers haven't been good for a while, and they were hoping to get back in, but I think most people would have said they're going to be second or third in the division. If I went back to March, I would have said they're improved. Uh, I can't wait to watch DeGrom pitch. A year or two is Seager, Simeon, and then if you told me, well, DeGrom barely pitched, I would have said, well, they're probably going to be like a 500 team because Houston won that division and Seattle won the wild card a year ago. So. I think that's how I feel overall. Now, of course, it's tricky because for five months of the year, they were the first-place team. So you can't just say, well, if they end the year with 84 wins, they should be happy. Of course not, because expectations were raised. But I think for Toronto coming in, people were saying this will be a team that will contend for the AL East, may win it, and may end up going all the way to the World Series. So I, I look at expectations versus reality. I would think it would be more disappointing if the Blue Jays missed the playoffs than the Rangers. But again, try telling the Texas fans mm-hmm. after you've been the first-place team for so long. But they're, they're bullpen. It's just imploding. I mean, it's, it's just it, if you're a Rangers fan, it must be painful to watch. And yesterday, Betty, God, you cannot get a better regular season baseball matchup. I was like I rearranging so. my schedule like a week in advance. I go, hang on a second, are we going to get Scherzer Verlander? I'm like, yeah, I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and then Scherzer just gets blown up for seven runs in three innings. That was abysmal. And uh, just a sign of how bad it's been for Texas lately. Yeah, it's it's not been great. Um, we'll see. I mean, that that's going to be the the series that probably determines the season uh, starting on Monday. The four gamer between the Blue Jays. And Rangers, not only because of the the lack of separation between these two teams at the bottom of the American League wildcard standings, but because the tiebreaker is going to be decided over those four games. If the Blue Jays take three to four, they'll own the tiebreaker against the Rangers. So I've, I've talked to you plenty this season about reasons why this Blue Jays team feels underwhelming or is underperformed. And I think a lot of our discussion has been focused on Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who, yeah, is having a down season. But I, I want to talk about somebody else who is having similarly a down year and is under contract for three more years beyond this one at almost 75 million. Yeah, you, you got it. Yeah. He's going to be 34 years old in, in, a, in a matter of days here, Adnan, and he has declined at least on the baseball reference like surface level page uh, like the three consecutive years now for the Blue Jays. I, I, I wonder if, if you think this is just a blip for him. Like are the Blue Jays in for a world of hurt the next three years? I'm really worried it's the latter. So far, it looks like a terrible contract. Let's be honest. I mean, I really like George Springer, the pride of hard hit in New Britain, Connecticut, which is about 10 minutes from where I lived in West Hartford for nine years. So I appreciate a Connecticut kid going all the way. And I like his backstory. You know, he's a kid overcame a very painful stutter. Um, there's a lot to like about George Springer. A lot of home runs in the postseason. Great run with the Astros. But they give him that contract, Ben. And you know, they outbid the Mets. And the rumor was they paid another 20 to $30 million more than the Mets. Mm-hmm. So they already knew it was an overpay. But they said Springer's that important in being a clutch player, decisive hitter, et cetera. So what happens? He's been injury-plagued. 
He's been inconsistent and so disappointing defensively. They've got to bring in Kiermaier and say, George, you're better served as a corner outfield position. Two years into the deal. Already they're like, yeah, you know, it's a corner outfield. Okay. And even offensively, when you're hovering, we, you and me have got on Vlad about not having an 800 OPS. Mm-hmm. How about Springer hovering around a 700 OPS? Are you kidding? For that kind of money you're paying him? That's not the bang for the buck that you're expecting. And I think for a lot of listeners right now, when you said 34, they said, what? I thought he was like 30, 31. I'm like, no, no, no. They signed George in his 30s. Yeah. And those contracts generally don't age very well. You, you, you had to think when they signed that deal, and the Mets were all for, I think they were offering six for 120. Jays went six for 150, whatever it was, in, the, in that range. Um, I think you had to feel like, well, the Jays are going to contend the next three or four years, and the last two years, meh, if it's not that bad, that's okay. Instead, it's gone the other way. So far, it's been underwhelming, and you have to hope, well, the next three years, they'll come roaring back to life, which is probably not the way it works. So I'm with you. Vlad Jr., we can get on a little bit. He's had his moments. But Springer's contract, if you look at the year overall and see the Blue Jays didn't make the playoffs, there's about a handful of offensive performances we're going to look at specifically. Mm-hmm. And we're going to say Vlad, we're going to say George, we're going to say Alejandro Kirk wasn't what we were hoping for. You know, with Danny Jansen down now, I know Kirk's been a little bit better, but still, on the year, hasn't been that guy. You're going to say Varsho offensively and, you know, maybe Kiermaier or Chapman after a great start. Like, ultimately, it's going to be this offense that let them down, and hopefully George can, can redeem himself and uh, really play well the next few weeks. Yeah, those multi-year contracts for guys in their 30s are always a roll of the dice and very rarely work out uh, in your favor. I mean, Hunjin Ryu, when he's been healthy, he's been pretty good and, and maybe the reason why he underperformed last year in, in the brief uh, moments that he pitched before undergoing Tommy John was because, you know, that was coming. Um, and I understand there's also things that go into it outside of just the performance on the field. I mean, in Ryu's case, it was a signal to the baseball world that the Blue Jays could, one, sign a big-name free agent and, one, and two, deal with... Uh, Scott Boris. Um, so I, I understand that as well. And I also think back to remember the J.D. Martinez signing, uh, the or sorry, the J.D. Drew uh, signing the Red Sox had that was oh, yeah. so abysmal. And then he has the Grand Slam in the 2004 playoffs, and it feels like that one moment alone was worth the big contract. Like, at what point do you, do, do you determine, hey, you know what, that contract wasn't worth it? Is it just the performance on the field during the regular season? Because I still feel like these two guys, and Springer in, in particular, because Ryu I don't think is going to be a factor if the Blue Jays get into the postseason. I mean, he was notably left off the Dodgers postseason roster in the year uh, that he was the, the uh, National League uh, ERA champ. But Good memory. Yeah, yep. could, could, could George Springer, like with, a, with a, a, a final couple of weeks and then a postseason run, like just – Make us all forget about the $75 million bucks still headed his way? Well, I think that is one of the ways, if you're a Springer fan, you do point to the fact he's always been a clutch performer. And I know serometricians and analytics will say, well, there's no such thing. But in the postseason, he has performed well. I think that's an absolutely true. And so generally, if you picture George Springer, you close your eyes, you can pick the playoffs, you go, oh, yeah. He was always had some big home runs for them. You picture him and Altuve and Bregman and Correa together. And you'd have to hope that, yeah, if you're going to underwhelm, do it in the regular season and overachieve come postseason time. But to me, this is the postseason now, Ben. Like, if you're a half a game up on the Rangers right now, yeah. it's got check time. This literally, every game feels like a playoff game. I think if you're a true Blue Jays fan, you've got anxiety every single time. And you have to feel like, again, you're going to sweep the Royals and go 7-2 in this easy stretch because then, as you and I are going to repeat a thousand times, it's 18 or 19 straight games against teams with winning records, particularly that series against the Rangers. And as we all know, their struggles against the American League East, and they've got teams against their own division, including the Yankees down the stretch who are finally playing better, the Baby Bombers, above 500, Dominguez's first home run. Like, it's... 
I, I think you can't wait and go, well, if they get in the playoffs, George will be great. No, no, now is the playoffs. George's got to step up now. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I look forward, but don't look forward to seeing the Martian, uh, Jason Dominguez, when the Blue Jays play the Yankees six more times before the end of the season. Um, so D- Davis Schneider is, is the guy that I don't feel anxious about when he's at the plate. It's, it's been unbelievable. Obviously, the start was incredible at Fenway Park, but that was against a Red Sox team that couldn't pitch at all. Uh, and then he kind of peters out a little bit, has a bit of a, a, a trough there, and doesn't end up starting a game for about a week and a half. And then he's now uh, one of the Blue Jays' best offensive players. I mean, probably the best offensive player, especially with Bo Bichette out right now. He's hitting second. So that's generally where you put the best offensive player. I know it's all about this season, but boy, and I know it's it's like in in baseball terms, it's such a small sample, but it, it, it just the process is matching the results. At, at what point here do you have to seriously think about Davis Schneider as a key contributor to the 2024 Toronto Blue Jays? I think you've got to consider it now, um, because especially when, you know, that series again at Fenway, you go, it's just a really cool story, right? He's, you know, late-round draft pick, and because of the goggles, the mustache, he's just somebody who immediately is going to be a fan favorite. And they, you know, beat the tar of the Red Sox in that series. But, like, it's conventional to say, without Bichette and Chapman, the Jays were going to struggle, and once they come back, they're going to be fine. And if you look at the numbers, you go, well, Schneider's been unbelievable. The guy's hitting like close to 400, and Ernie Clement did a really good job filling in for Bo as well. So I hope when those guys come back, and I believe Bo's back this weekend or early next week, that like it's going to be, you know, status quo. But you have to appreciate most baseball teams are not going to be healthy the entire season, with the exception of like the Atlanta Braves, who have incredible durability, and those guys play every day, and they're on the verge of clinching a playoff spot, so we'll see how much those guys rest. But generally speaking, the true test of a team is you get tested by your depth. When guys go down, because everyone goes down, because it's baseball, it's a long season, do you have the reinforcements? And in the case of the Blue Jays, that is something you can say, like, wow, I was not expecting this in the days of Snyder and Clement and et cetera. And to your point, next year, you have to start to look at this roster. Now, I think they're going to be hard-pressed to keep Matt Chapman. I don't even know if they want to keep Matt Chapman, right? Because mm-hmm. he's great defensively, and he's got power, but he's going to command a lot of money. It's a pretty weak free agent market in terms of bats. Uh, I don't think he gets $200 million, but I think he's going to get maybe George Springer money, right? I think he's maybe seven years, 150, something like that. So that's probably too much for the Jays. So that's where you start to say to yourself, hey, this can become more than just a feel-good story. This can be a guy who is really good in meaningful baseball games. And if he has a great camp, then why shouldn't he break camp and have a job with us? I think already that conversation should be forming in your head if you're part of that Blue Jays front office. Uh, I want to talk some U.S. Open with you, uh, Adnan. Um, No Canadians left for you to to go and jinx. Um, But, yeah, (laughs) there is a 20-year-old American who is the story of the tournament so far, Ben Shelton, uh, knocking off Francis Tiafoe, um, and becomes the first or the youngest American male uh, since Michael Chang in 1992 to reach the semifinals. He's 20 years old. He's he's unbelievable. It was a a great match against Tiafoe, two Americans in, in the quarterfinals. I read a Washington Post story that... Tennis is cool, like it's having a moment. Apparently, attendance is way up at the U.S. Open. Well, what's the state of American tennis right now? You know, you were there. Yeah, I can speak to the fact, for those who missed it last week, because I was telling Ben, I was there for night one of the U.S. Open, and the crowds were fantastic. And unfortunately, I jinxed it as Milos and Felix were both ousted. But you're right. I think tennis is having a moment. And the fact they had, listen, 
like all things, people kind of you know begrudge Americans. They only care if Americans are involved. But that's probably true of most things. Of course, Canadians will like things more if Canadians are involved. And Americans will like tennis more when Americans are involved. The sport was more popular when it was Sampras and Agassi and Roddick. And once it you know was assumed by my man Roger and Rafa and Djokovic, it's not the same thing because there's no American pushing these guys. You know, Roddick was the last guy to, to win a slam. So I think what happened, first of all, is Americans are doing well. That's important. So you look at it and you say, wow, Coco Goff in the semis for the first time. And immediately, not just because she's young and American, but she's black, but someone says, well, is she the next arena? You go, well, not quite. Let's slow down on that. But she is a player with a lot of promise, sixth ranked in the world. Uh, has shown a lot of gutsiness and, and composure. And I saw her night one when she got pushed to three sets. So I can say the fact that she looks shaky early on and has now asserted herself. And I love Brad Gilbert. Speaking of Americans, he coached Agassi. Uh, of course, he's part of ESPN's tennis coverage. He's coaching her. So it's important to have Americans doing well, period. So if all of a sudden, Coco Goff's there and Fritz is there and Tiafo's there and Shelton's there. Already those crowds are going to spike because – you know, like all things, people are fickle. I think a lot of tennis fans want to go. There's a lot of Americans in New York who just like going to watch tennis. It feels like a rite of passage, kind of like for us back home, A, the C, and E, right? Everyone goes to the X. That feels like it's the last blast of summer. Let me get the kids back to school after Labor Day. But what happens is there's enough fair-weather fans who go, oh, you know what? I wasn't doing much tonight. Hey, wait, wait, wait. It's Shelton versus Tiafo? Huh? That's pretty cool. American versus American. Let's go. And then you see Shelton, and you go, okay, this guy's a crowd pleaser. Like, he's hitting the crap out of the ball. Big lefty, cocky. Uh, uh, 20 years of age, as you said, like there, there's a lot to like about him. And one of my tennis buddies texted me as we were watching. He said, got a little bit of Marat Safin in him. I saw that's interesting. I said, I love Safin because he hit, the, again, he was a hothead, but volatile, and he was so talented. He said, oh, yeah. He goes, sometimes you'd watch Marat Safin and say, yeah, he's got dinner reservations. Clearly he's checked out. And sometimes you look at the best tennis player in the world. So I hope Shelton has the, uh, the talent of Marat Safin and hopefully better composure as well. But it's been a good story, man. And tennis needs good stories. And he's going to face Djokovic, which is going to be a mammoth, mammoth match in terms of trying to overcome Joker. But if he can do it, even push him to four or five, uh, that's great. And you're going you're gonna to have tennis fans born of those moments. You know that. I, I, when I met Agassi years ago, you know, I love his book. If you're a tennis fan, if you're a sports fan, everyone knows how good his book is because it's so revealing and so honest. It's called Open. And he was at the chapters. I can't remember where I was in Toronto. I might have been Mississauga. But I was such a big Agassi fan. I drove there, and I remember waiting like an hour and a half to meet him. And when I finally get to the front, uh, you know, I'm planning what to say. And I said, that match with James Blake at the U.S. Open was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. And Andre, without missing a beat, just takes the book and goes, yeah, it's in there. Like, I could, could not have under <laughs> played a little more. I'm like, that was not worth the hour and a half and the traffic to go on the 401, but whatever, he signed my book. But I mentioned that because while watching the Shelton match, I don't know if James Blake was calling it, but he's been calling a bunch of matches for ESPN and he said, to this day, people still mention to me, hey, that match against Agassi US Open, and then bam, they roll in the barrel, you see the video, I'm like, yeah, that's like me. So there's going to be Ben Shelton fans, no matter what happened in his career, are going to say, dude, when you faced Djokovic, even though you lost in five sets, that tiebreak in the third set was unbelievable. So I, I hope he wins, of course, but the least, I hope it's a great match because that will still help the surge of interest in tennis. Yeah, I think James Blake uh, was there for the t- uh, coin toss as well. So, yeah, obviously, hearkening yeah. uh, back to some of the, the great American versus uh, American head-to-head matchups at, at this great tournament. And, yeah, he's going to be even more of an underdog uh, against Djokovic, obviously, than he was against the ranked uh, Tiafo. Um, I wonder... If this is not the sport where it, it is most advantageous to be the underdog, because it can actually impact your style of play. And he talked about going for it and, and taking big, big swings at the ball because what's worse can happen? You're going to lose the match. I mean, you weren't expected to win anyways. I, 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 you know what? I hearken back to my, my ping pong. I, I've got a new ping pong table. I'm playing with my son, and I give him a 15-point lead. And you know what he's figured out? 
that I just take wild swings, try to smash everything because yeah. what, what's the difference? I, I, I'm going to lose to you anyways, and it's and it's worked out a couple of times. It's actually, I mean, it's not an advantage. You'd, you'd rather be Djokovic, but it is interesting how it can impact your play in this sport. Uh, well, let's personalize it. I am like your son when it comes to ping pong. It sounds like you're going wild swings. He's conservative, just trying to get the ball over the net. That's like me. And the other day, I played tennis with a buddy. Again, 90-degree weather yesterday, and he always beats me because he's better than me. But what I'm counting on is those wild mistakes and unforced <laughs> errors because I'm, I'm just right middle of the net. Like, I'm not even making anything interesting. I'm not going in the corners, but I'm very safe and predictable. But I gagged a 40-love lead. Like, oh. I was, I, 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 it's still keeping me. I, I couldn't even sleep last night. I go, God. He had, he was, he had me in the ropes, a 4-3, that Again, I normally lose, but I'm up 40 love, Ben. I said, let's at least just tie this thing at four. Let's push this to a tie break. I lose 7-5, and it was such a stark reminder as I lay on my couch, unable to sleep last night. I said, tennis is so mental, right? Like, when you, when you lose a big game, when you lose a big point, it's almost impossible to regain your composure and to have a short memory. The greats can do it. Most of us cannot. So I hope Shelton can be a front runner and get out to an early lead. Because if you're down two sets to Joker, mm. everyone knows it's ball game. So get under skin a little bit get a couple of big shots you know get a nice rally going get that crowd going that that would be really fun to see yeah uh, tennis definitely having a moment uh adnan always appreciate it talk next week all right ben keep it up with the ping pong take it easy on your son we'll talk soon all right sounds good see ya adnan Verk, mlb network nhl network and the cinephile podcast i love tennis it's not you know it's not on the level of the conventional team north american pro sports but i would like it to return to its previous glory because Adnan brings up the Andre Agassi, James Blake match. I mean, there was an era of men's singles tennis in which it was pretty high profile. And as soon as Roger Federer, you know, eased his way into being the best player in the world and then, you know, Rafa Nadal and Novak Djokovic shortly joined him and Andy Murray was in there as well. I mean, Andy Roddick won one U.S. Open, but there just has not been this influx of American tennis superstars like there were in the past with Pete Sampras setting the Grand Slams mark. And as much as there's a rivalry, a rivalry between the United States and Canada, I think if you're a fan of the sport, you want some Americans to be relevant because it raises the profile of the entire sport. And uh, maybe this is what we're seeing with Ben Shelton. All right, back to baseball for just a second here. A couple of things. Let's start with George Springer, who is having a bad season. Now, I do separate what is happening with George Springer versus what is happening with Vladimir Guerrero Jr., or at least the discourse between the two, because I think, for me, the discourse around Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is what is he? What, what can he be? What is the upside of Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? There's no such conversation about George Springer. It's World Series MVP. And before this season was a well above average and this season even though he's having a very down offensive year he's still a league average offensive player tells you what you need to know about the state of offense in major league baseball we know how good george springer can be has been might be could still be and boy you look at his baseball savant page and you look at some of the maybe not extra velocities because that's down a little bit but you do look at like the whiff percentage way down from a season ago. Expected batting average about the same. Now the expected slug is down and the ground ball rate is up and the fly ball rate is down. And you wonder what the correlation is there because it doesn't. Now that sounds a lot. Not necessarily with the ground ball fly ball uh, ratios, but the fact that there's a lack of slug 
does sound a lot like what we're seeing with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And the fact that maybe he's decided instead of wild hacks trying to hit home runs, I'm going to be more contact-oriented, which is all nice and good if you're Ichiro and you can pound out 260 hits a season. But there's only one Ichiro. And it does feel like a team-wide epidemic with this team that they've decided that contact and not striking out is more important than hitting the ball over the fence. Um, but yeah, he's about to be 34. And it's hard not to look at that baseball reference page and look at the OPSs year after year after year, although it was a very small sample in his first season. Only 78 games played in 2021. 907 OPS, though. And, and the record, of course, that the Blue Jays had with him in the lineup was otherworldly, so there's a concerted effort to make him or put him in positions to be healthier last season down to 814 and this season 735 for a guy who's now in his mid-30s. Like, that's... I've seen more than a few career trajectories that around the same age look pretty similar to George Springer's, but just like progress is not linear, I, w- I would... Not always is... Mm, your downward trajectory, linear. So I wouldn't say that this means that because his OPS has gone down almost 100 points the last two seasons, that we're headed for like a 650 OPS season from George Springer. It's unlikely, though, we're going to see the 900 OPS version of George Springer. All right, when we come back, it is week one of the NFL season, and we got the defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs at home at Arrowhead playing the Detroit Lions? who people are excited to watch. I mean, they had nine wins a season ago, but that's quite a bump up the ladder as far as pedigree is concerned. We'll talk to our friend Amy Trask, CBS NFL analyst, former Raiders CEO, next as the Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. If it feels like it's been a while since you saw meaningful NFL football, you're right. 207 days have passed since Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs won Super Bowl 57 over the Eagles. And tonight, they start their title defense against the fun Lions team that won nine games last season. They have bigger expectations this season. Let's talk to our friend Amy Trask of uh, CBS Sports, former Raiders CEO, host of what the football podcast, a new podcast that she's hosting. She joins us online right now. How's it going, Amy? Happy for uh, opening day. Well, thank you very much, and, and thank you for that lovely introduction. And you're counting down the number of days since it's been since we last had football. I don't know how it got to be September yet, because I think last week was just the July 4th weekend. I don't know what happened to August. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it all, like sand through the hourglass. These are the days of our lives, Amy. Yeah, no, it just, it, it, it all slipped away, and, and it won't be long now, and, well, for us in, in Canada, that it, it gets cold. But not for you in California. You got plenty of beach days uh, ahead of you. Um, so the, the, the Chiefs go into this game where they're going to unveil their Super Bowl banner without... Chris Jones, who although apparently he's going to be there in a suit, maybe, uh, and and the the team is totally cool with that because um, they're unveiling the, the the banner and at some point are going to get their 
their rings. But maybe not Travis Kelsey. He's he's a game time decision with the hyperextended knee. So the, every year they're like a, they're a lock for twelve wins and they're a lock for an a- AFC championship game as long as Patrick Mahomes is the quarterback. Like at what point? And I know they lost Tyreek Hill last year. Like at what point is is there too much attrition that the Chiefs can't overcome it? Well, in no particular order as to the terrific topics you just raised, um, attrition with a Super Bowl running, winning team is the norm. You know, whenever a team wins the Super Bowl, the, they, that team, um, other teams tend to try to pick it apart a little bit and grab this guy and grab that guy. So it's sort of the norm for a Super Bowl winning team. I was one of the people who thought that the loss of Tyreek Hill prior to last season would be a bigger deal than it was. You know, there's that saying, and boy, Cliff Branch told me this throughout my career with the Raiders. Can't coach speed. Can't coach speed. I heard that from Cliff a lot. Um, So I thought that the loss of Tyreek Hill would be a bigger deal. Credit to Andy Reid, of course, and at the time, Eric Bieniemy, who has moved on, that they simply rolled on and won the Super Bowl without Tyreek. Um, you know, the, the Chris Jones situation is interesting. I, and I may well be wrong, of course, but I am still of the mind we may be surprised mm. and he may run out on the field <laughs> in a uniform. They may find a way to get it done. And even, you know, if they get it done at the last minute, even if he doesn't take a snap or, you know, takes only a snap, they may get it done in time to put him in a uniform. So I'm not ruling that out. Now, that said... If he doesn't play, that can be bad for either the team or the player. Let's say he doesn't play. Let's say they don't get it done and the team loses. Well, you've just lost a game. Mm -hmm. You've lost one out of 17. And people can say, well, it's just game one. Well, it's a non-conference opponent. You still just lost a game. But if the team goes out and wins without him, he might have just shown the team you know, I am valuable, I am important, but you just won without me. So, you know, I hope they find a way to get it done. I think it would be phenomenal if they surprised everybody and they panned up and put a camera on the suite and there he was in a uniform and walked down onto the (laughs) sideline. But then again, I like movies that, you know, end with happy endings. So um, there you go. Yeah, we'll we'll see. That would be cool because, yeah, I I was kind of with you that he hadn't necessarily been ruled out for the game and still hasn't, I guess. Like, there's, you know, what if they put pen to paper right now and he was activated and and put into into the game? Um, I don't rule it out, but uh, indications are that he's going to at least miss tonight's game against the Lions team that they're heavily favored against naturally at home. But like I said, won nine games a a season ago, frisky team after winning three games the, the, the prior season. And obviously Dan Campbell's bunch have have higher expectations this season, especially now that Aaron Rodgers is out of their division. Are the Lions ready for prime time? Well, a couple things. Irrespective of whether they are or they're not, everybody certainly thinks they are. They're opening on no. opening night on the road in prime time, and they've got a nut. Sorry about that. I got so excited. I dropped the earpiece <laughs> right out of my ear. They've also got a number of, a number of other primetime games this year. So ready or not, here they come, primetime. You know, the other point is Jared Goff is now a year into this offense. And by all accounts, he's looking better, looking more comfortable. And, and they did win a, a lot of games last year. Um, they won eight of their last ten, I believe. And look, this is a team that hasn't won its division in 30 years. 30. 3-0, 30 years. 
So the fans are tremendously excited. Dan Campbell shared a story that the fans were so excited during a preseason game. Um, it required a team to go to the silent count in a preseason game. So, um, but that said, this is the Chiefs. They're hanging their banner. And I will tell you, in all my years in the league, that was the most difficult road environment in which we played. Mm. Those fans in Kansas City, the, the word I can, the only word I can use is cacophonous. Mm. They are just cacophonous, and it is a very, very hard venue in which to play as a visiting team. Yeah, might be a bunch of points scored in, in tonight's game. It's a, it's a nice little game to, to whet our appetite for the weekend and then wrapped up with uh, an AFC East divisional affair between the Bills and Jets where we get to see Aaron Rodgers' Jets debut for a Jets team that managed to win a bunch of games last year with with very limited quarterback play because of that great defense, which we expect, I think, to be back pretty close to that that form this season. I, how close to the MVP form does does Aaron Rodgers need to be for, for the Jets to get where they want to be? I think he needs to be pretty darn good. Um, you know, does he need to be MVP? I don't know about that. Uh, they did have some pass protection issues this preseason. They seem to have addressed them a little bit. They've got Becton back in the line. Um, Aaron seems to be working very well with Becton. It, it looks like that's headed in the right direction. They've got to protect Aaron. Um, they got to be able to run the ball, not just pass the ball. You know, they've got to have a full, full, full offense. But that said, Aaron Rodgers is a very, very, very special quarterback. And if the defense can hold opponents, you know, they can win a lot of games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, tons of pressure on him, uh, of course. But, yeah, it's, it's a pretty good spot to be on a team with, with that level of defense. I don't know if it's a good spot that Jordan Love finds himself in uh, on a Packers team that's always expected to be good. They're a very young team. They've, they've got some weapons, obviously, in the passing game. Um, and you know what? They selected him in the first round, and it, it was part of the reason, if not the primary reason, that the future Hall of Famer, Aaron Rodgers, decided to move on to, to greener pastures, uh, literally, in, in the form of Kelly Green uh, <laughs> with the New York Jets. But you know, that being said, he did get a couple of years to sit behind and watch a future Hall of Famer. This used to be the way it was done with first-round quarterbacks. I mean, Aaron Rodgers uh, in particular, not anymore. I mean, we're, we're getting three first-round pick dra- uh, quarterbacks starting in week one this season. But do you think Jordan Love's been put in a position to succeed? Well, you took the words right out of my mouth, um, which were, look what Aaron, Aaron got to sit behind Brett Favre. And you're right. That's the way it was done back in the day, so to speak, before the new collective bargaining agreement came into place. And it, it prioritized getting your quarterbacks on the field sooner than you otherwise might or than you certainly did in the olden days, I will say. And I'm allowed to say that because I was there in the olden days, so it's not that pejorative. Um, but look, you know, I hope that Packer fans are patient with Jordan. Clearly, the team believes he can be their next quarterback. But the reason I want Packer fans to be patient is recognize how magnificently you've had it all these years. You had Brett Favre for umpteen years, followed by Aaron Rodgers for umpteen years. So give Jordan a little bit of breathing room because you've had it very, very good at quarterback up there in Green Bay. Yeah, um, the, the San Francisco 49ers went through a, a good run of quarterbacks there with Joe Montana and then Steve Young, of course, and then 
you know, they, they've they've had some good quarterbacks since then. And then, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo does get them to a Super Bowl. In fact, with a lead in the fourth quarter of a Super Bowl. But yeah, health issues uh, hampering his uh, ultimate winning of, of a Super Bowl in San Francisco. And then, yeah, what happened in the postseason against the Eagles last year and everybody getting hurt hampering the, the Niners uh, attempt to, to win a Super Bowl uh, under Kyle Shanahan. And now we got Brock Purdy seemingly healthy, but man, his his sample in, in the NFL is so limited here, Amy. I mean, what is your level of, of belief that Brock Purdy is, is good enough to, to lead the, the Niners to an NFC championship? Three reactions to that. One, you're absolutely right. Of course, it's a very, very, very small sample size. Number two, clearly, the organization believes in him, Kyle Shanahan, John Lynch, presumably Jed York. They clearly believe in him, and they're looking at him every single day. I'm not. So point three is they believe he can get it done. We will see. I don't know. It is a very small sample size. Um, and if he does get it done, well, you know what? Here's to those who are chosen last. Mm. He was the proverbial Mr. Irrelevant, the last player uh, taken. So if he does get it done for them and if they perform to expectations of many this year and if they ultimately win a Super Bowl with him, well, you know what? Um, that's, a, that, that's a good movie. Yeah, it's an unbelievable movie. I, I don't know if it's, it's a similar movie, but it's, it's, a, it's a good movie as well in Denver if, if one move, and that's at the head coach position, changes the fortunes of a Broncos team that was one of the Super Bowl favorites going into last year and like game one of the season, Russell Wilson faces the, the Seahawks and disappoints as he, he did for uh, most of, of, of 17 games a year ago. Is this the biggest test of, of the impact a head coach can make in the NFL, uh, swapping in Sean Payton into a situation that was obviously uh, not the, the top coaching um, uh, performance in the NFL a season ago? Well, I, I was thrilled for the Broncos. Um, not that I'm a Bronco rooter or fan, but um, I think it was, the, I, I was thrilled for their fans, I should say, that Sean Payton was ultimately the choice of the organization. I think very, very, very highly of Sean as a coach. I think Sean will do a far, 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 far better job bringing out the best in Russell um, than did the prior coaching staff. Um, I think the best coaches best position their players to be their best. And I think he will best position Russell to be the best Russell can be. And we will see how good that can be this year. But I think there's going to be a tremendous um, shift in the Broncos, how they approach things, how they play, um, whether they get it all turned around this year or not, whether it takes more than a year, I don't know. But I think it was a tremendous hire by the Broncos. Uh, before we let you go, I, I want to ask you about the the team that is, uh, fr- from a proximity standpoint, uh, closest to where we're broadcasting from, the Buffalo Bills, who were Super Bowl favorites before week one a season ago and, and looked pretty darn good for the majority of the season, ended up hosting a postseason game against the Bengals. That didn't go so well. Uh, they're now third mm-hmm. favorites, uh, at least betting-wise, to, to win the Super Bowl going into this season. I saw Stefan Diggs on a podcast today talking about how they like going into a season under the radar. Is the window closing there? Like, do you, do you feel like this is actually a good spot for for the Bills, or is are their their best chance at, at winning a Super Bowl behind them? I think that's a great question, and it's one I've been pondering a lot as I've been asked on some of the shows on which I participate to make predictions and such things. Um, 
you know, your windows do stay open for a period of time. Some windows close more quickly than others. The Bills still do have some tremendous, tremendous players on the roster. And, and I think why I'm, I, I, if I sound as if I'm hemming and hawing, it's not because I want to hem and haw. It's because I'm very conflicted on this. My gut tells me we may not see the same Bills team this year that we saw last year or the year before. We may see a team that's a little less than we've seen the past few years. But then I stop myself and I say, why do I think that? I don't have any really, really terrific reasons to back up that conclusion, but my gut just tells me they may not be the Bills we saw last year or the year before. And by the way, there's more competition in the division now. The Jets should be better. Many, many people think the Dolphins will be better. A lot of that will depend on Tua staying healthy, you know, you know, staying with the team, not on IR. Um, and I think New England's going to be definitely going to be bigger. There's been tremendous addition by subtraction in New England. Gone is the Matt Patricia running the offense experiment. What the heck was that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that wasn't so good. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't go so well, but that's definitely going to be a for for uh, formidable division this upcoming season. It all starts tonight at Arrowhead. It is the uh, Detroit Lions and the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs. Amy, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Always my pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. There's Amy Trask, CBS NFL analyst, former Raiders CEO, and host of the What the Football podcast. Thursday night football gets you underway with the defending champs, as it always does, again, against the Lions, who are put in this position because they can provide perhaps cannon fodder (laughs) for a Chiefs offense that might be without their best offensive weapon outside of Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, or maybe without Chris Jones trying to track down Jared Goff, they go ham offensively and come up with a week one surprise. It would be a surprise because Patrick Mahomes never lost week one. It's pretty consistent. Like I said, 12 wins. Um, But this from uh, James Palmer of the NFL Network. There's a pretty good chance Chris Jones will be at Arrowhead tonight in a suite to watch the Chiefs open up the season against the Lions. If he's there, it wouldn't be a surprise to the Chiefs either. And they are not opposed to allowing Jones to be there and see the Super Bowl banner drop. Now, that is a confident franchise. And why shouldn't they be in? They've been to an AFC championship game each of the last five years. Every single season under Patrick Mahomes. They've won two Super Bowls under Patrick Mahomes. They've been to another Super Bowl with Patrick Mahomes. They are a lock, 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 despite throwing significant pieces overboard like Tyreek Hill. Well, that's quite a situation. Chris Jones is literally under contract. And I, listen, this is not a judgment call on whether Chris Jones should, in fact, be sitting out these games because we know, I mean, putting your life on the line is maybe a Bit of an exaggeration on a weekly basis, but not that far off. The amount of abuse physically these guys take, especially when you're talking about a lineman, um, more an offensive line. But yeah, an edge rusher, same deal. Running over people, generally, um, or he attempts to do. I have no qualms with a guy who can be cut at any point on the other side of things, deciding, you know what? I actually need to secure my future because I am the most valuable defensive asset with my couple of sacks during the postseason and team leader in sacks a a season ago. But he's literally in a a contractual dispute with the organization. He's like, yeah, that's fine. We'll be in a team suite. I mean, I I, I guess I I just kind of invented that he'd be in a team suite, but 
Are they going to make Chris Jones pay for his own suite? Is he going to be in the bleachers? Like, I doubt it. This is a guy that they're literally day by day staring each other down across the table. He says, I want more money. And they say, we don't want to give you more money. And then game day comes and, you know, his job is to play on the field. And he's contractually obligated to do so. And they understand that he doesn't want to. And they put him in a suite either way. Uh, that is a confident franchise. One that deserves to be confident as well. One that until further notice, doesn't matter who they lose outside of Patrick Mahomes, are going to be a lock for at least a postseason spot, at least a domination of the AFC West, and at least an AFC championship game appearance. And at least a game one win. It's happened each and every season. Want to go back to the Blue Jays for a second. So I mentioned there was a couple of things that I wanted to get to uh, before the break, but I only got to George Springer. Who again, uh, if you look at the numbers, it's not all that concerning beneath the hood because the expected batting average is the same as it was a season ago. He's just not hitting for as much power. He's hitting the ball on the ground a little bit more and not hitting his fastballs because he's not looking for fastballs. Or not getting in fastball counts, maybe, but his whiff percentage is way down. You know who's getting into fastball counts? David Schneider. And I pose to Adnan Verk the possibility that the Blue Jays are already thinking about life as David Schneider with David Schneider as an everyday player in 2024. And granted, the sample's super small. It's super, super, super small. It is. But it's, it's not super small when you consider his entire professional career because he has 1,600 minor league plate appearances, which look eerily similar, not to this, because, no, he wasn't this good. Honestly, if he had been this good throughout the course of 1,600 minor league uh, plate appearances, you would have seen him earlier than you saw him this year in the, in the major leagues. But he has been a well-above-average offensive player. And in the microcosm of 82 major league plate appearances, he's had like a career, like it's like a miniature career of ups and downs because he starts like a house on fire. Has the the series at Fenway Park. Homer's in his first at bat, and he's the talk of the town. Incredible, incredible start. And then he cools off. And he goes like, well, like 0 for 12 with a bunch of strikeouts. A bunch of walks, though, it should be stated. And he's no longer a starter. He misses 11 straight games as a starting player on the Toronto Blue Jays. Not sent down, but not into the lineup. And then gets another opportunity understanding his own weaknesses, which very much exist at the top of the zone in the form of fastballs. And he does it again. So not only are you seeing the process when it comes to getting into hitters counts, understanding what you can and can't hit, but you're seeing the adjustment already made as a guy that's not afraid to talk about his weaknesses, being at the top of the zone, being fastballs up and around his head. I mean, how many times have we seen him turn on that? And despite a guy that takes a lot of pitches and gets into deep counts, he's also not afraid to swing at the first pitch if it's something he likes. Go back to the, the home run he hit yesterday in Oakland. So do I think he's an MVP candidate? Do I think he's an all-star? Maybe not. Although I wouldn't rule the all-star part out. But do I, like, am I more than 50% at this point in the David Schneider of it all in saying that this is a guy that will break camp as the Blue Jays starting, I don't know, take your pick because Whit Merrifield's a free agent 
Matt Chapman's a free agent. As their starting second baseman, yeah, I, I kind of think that's more than likely the case. Uh, and lastly, in regards to the 70-plus million dollars that George Springer is owed, that's bad. No, no doubt, no doubt. It's bad. You got about $60 million coming off the books, though, at the end of this season. A lot of it in the form of Hunter and Ryu, who also goes into this, this um, discussion as far as the Blue Jays' big free agent signings. And I'm talking about guys that were... So, like, Jose Barrios does not apply in the list that I'm about to talk about because he was traded for and then signed to an extension. But guys that were given multi-year deals in free agency, tying up many years of, 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 pay, of payroll... For the Toronto Blue Jays. And I'm thinking about the hits and the misses. Like at this point, it's unquestionably one of the best signings in Blue Jays history to talk about Kevin Gossman, where they had a choice between he and Robbie Ray, or maybe not a choice. Maybe they're kind of, you know, considering some of the constraints uh, around vaccination status at the time. Although you hear conflicting reports on that. Decided to give the money to Kevin Gossman. The devil you don't know as opposed to the devil you know, where they had rehabilitated Robbie Ray to the point of being the American League Cy Young Award winner. They went to a guy that they had had dalliances with in previous off-seasons. That worked out exceedingly, exceedingly well. Chris Bassett, this past off-season, bit of a roll of the dice, and and I guess the the story is not complete, even year one of that multi-year deal, but, I mean, so far, so good. I certainly would have taken what Chris Bassett has provided this season. Now we start to get into the the questionable side of things. You say Kikuchi looked like one of the worst signings in the history of this franchise a season ago, where at some points, I mean, I wasn't alone in this. Who didn't think about the idea of that contract already being a sunk cost, three years, 36 million bucks, that Blue Jays just eat the rest of that deal that he was not only not helping them, but anytime they were forced to use him in a game, it was detrimental. Did I think he would rehabilitate himself to not only be a league average pitcher, but one of the best since the All-Star break? I did not. So let's call that one a wash. Now we get into the really interesting territory. So I mentioned to Adnan Verk that there's more that goes into evaluating a free agent signing as far as the team's performance over those years the players' performance over those years, maybe off-field stuff. Hunjin Ryu was signed partly because he was coming off uh, a season with the Dodgers in which he led the National League in ERA, I would say even primarily. But partly because this team just had no track record of dipping into the top of the free agent pool, one, and two, talking to Scott Boras' clients, and they did both. And maybe with no Hunjin Ryu signing in 2020, who, by the way, was kind of instrumental in the Blue Jays getting into the playoffs for the first time in a very bizarre season, but he was pretty damn great when he was healthy in the 2020 season. Not so great in the playoffs. Um, But one, he gives you a kick of the can when it comes to a postseason appearance. And two, maybe starts knocking down the door in regards to... Major League Baseball player agents understanding that the Blue Jays were going to be a player at the top of free agency. Because the next year, it's George Springer. And it's a lot of money. And there's a lot of the story that's yet to be written. 
And I think a lot of rehabilitation that can happen in the final 20-some-odd games of this regular season and definitely an extended postseason run could change the opinions of so very many. And also there was an understanding at the time that giving him the extra year, giving him, as Adnan says, 20-plus million bucks more than a team that, you know, Steve Cohen was still the owner of at the time, the New York Mets. Like, there was an understanding that if you went to that number with a guy that was going to be in his late 30s by the end of that deal, and this is the deal with any, pretty much, free agent contract negotiated, that the last couple of years, if not three years, are not going to look so good. But yeah, I, I, I thought you'd get more than like two years of goodness out of George Springer. And that's what it's been. Not even two full years. The first year, he was injured throughout it. Last year, he was good if not great, like 800 OPS. And then this year, the whole idea was to make him the best version of himself, taking him out of center field, putting him in right field, and for some reason, it's been the opposite. Got to get to the bottom of that because as much as I still believe Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s down season has been the root cause of the Blue Jays' offensive struggles, he's right there uh, in runner-up position. All right, when we come back, Team Canada resuming its quest for FIBA World Cup gold tomorrow morning at a quarter to five in the morning. They're already into the Olympics for the first time since 2000. Speaking of which, we will talk to a member of that 2000 Olympic team. Todd McCullough, former Sixer and Net Center, joins me next. The Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Fresh views on everything in the National Football League. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. So Sunday... Canadian men's basketball team and their win against Spain, the biggest win for that program in over two decades. So I would take you back to July 24th, 1999. Canada beating Puerto Rico 83-71 in the semifinals of the FIBA Tournament of the Americas to punch their ticket to the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Now on that team, uh, Steve Nash, of course, but also a young whippersnapper by the name of Todd McCullough, former Sixer and Net Center. Uh, who joins us online right now. How's it going, Todd? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I- I'm doing very, very well. So um, when when you were playing in the Olympics in Sydney, and man, what a what a run you guys had and just bowing out to a, a France team that would eventually win a, a silver medal, would you have thought that it would take more than five Olympic cycles to, to get this country back to that event? Uh, no, no. I thought... Uh... Thought it would have happened before that. I'm super proud of the team for getting back there. I mean, mainly I wanted all those guys to have experienced this uh, early because it was such a, you know, such an amazing uh, experience to be a part of. And I feel like it, it bonded our team uh, forever. And it was really, you know, monumental and just huge. And I just, I would have loved for those guys to have had that experience earlier. But the main thing is uh, they're going to get that now. That's that's the main thing that they they got the job done and they're going to remember this for the the rest of their lives. And I just, I remember thinking, you know, I couldn't think of a better city in the world than uh, Sydney to host it. And, and I think Paris is, is right there. So I think they're going to be in a great city and a great country and a great time. And I think they're, they're peaking at the right time and they're putting all that, that talent together. They're working together. And I think, you know, I think 
our goal was definitely, you know, just get to the Olympics. And then we had to readjust our goals and I, and, and say, you know, we're not just happy to go. We want to make some noise. And we, and we did. And I think it's pretty clear that this team is, it's, you know, obviously step one is punch your ticket, get there. Um, but clearly with them being in the, in the final four right now, the world cup, uh, they're a team that could, you know, could contend for a gold medal, which is, which is pretty cool. So I think they're, uh, they, they've, they've got their sights set pretty high because they, I think they really have the talent to do it. And now they, uh, and they're, they're getting that experience. Yeah. I think all of, uh, every basketball fan in this country is kind of like recalibrating is the way I've, I've put it is that, yeah, it just felt like such a relief to get past that finish line of qualifying for the Olympics for the first time since 2000, that you, you got to look at, at the opportunity afforded to you in front of you, which is meddling for the first time at, at the FIBA World Cup of Basketball. And it's very much a, a possibility with a semifinal against Serbia in the offing tomorrow morning. Uh, we'll talk about this this current iteration of Team Canada in just a second, though, Todd. But I, I want to go back to, yeah, 24 years ago, the Tournament of the Americas in 99. You're drafted like a couple of months prior to that in the second round. And and so much of this team, like what's made it great is the buy-in. And, and Team Canada has asked for a three-year commitment from players. Um yeah, and obviously the, the the talent pool wasn't as as deep in in the late '90s, early 2000s. Was there ever a doubt for you, like embarking on on your NBA career of, of showing up for Team Canada at the time? Uh, no, there was there was no there was no doubt. I started playing for uh, Coach Triano on the on the junior national team, and then I uh, I played for Coach uh, Olenek and and different people within Canada's uh, junior national team and uh, in student national games. Um, and just loved playing for uh, for Triano, and I was going to answer that call. And I think he was sort of brought in in the hopes that maybe he could have us there in two thousand in uh, two thousand and four. I thought I think people thought maybe uh, you know it would take some time for us to to gel. But anytime you've got Nash on the roster, that's just going to elevate the play of of everyone else. And so um, you know my confidence had been uh, damaged a little bit. It's it's a little crazy to think that only. 60 people get drafted into the NBA, but I, I kind of really wanted to be a first round pick. I thought that my body of work in college, um, you know, would have uh, put me somewhere in the first, or at least I was hoping that. And when it didn't happen, my confidence was shaken. And the best thing for me was to go play with team Canada, go play with guys that, that knew me, that liked me, that, that knew I could play. And all of a sudden now I'm playing with Nash and he's drawing my defender and handing me the ball <laughs> and giving me the easiest layups. I'm, I'm, I realized, okay, I'm not a bad player just because I wasn't a first rounder. Uh, doesn't take away, you know, from then. So um, it was uh, all of a sudden we play Argentina in the first game and we beat them. And that surprised a lot of people. And then we played Brazil and we beat them. And then I think we beat Uruguay. And then next thing you know, we're going up against uh, Puerto Rico. And I just remember it was such a huge game. And our whole goal was to, to make it to that final against the U S and, you know, un- unfortunately I, I wanted it so badly that I, I sort of paralyzed myself and, and did not play well and really felt like I was letting, down you know the team the coach the the country but fortunately uh steve nash went the other way instead of sort of being paralyzed in in this moment that was so important he was able to keep it all in perspective and uh, and turn that into a, a positive and played even better than you know normal steve nash greatness and he took it to another gear and i, I think the coach told him like i need you to be selfish i need you to score you know get to the hole and, and finish and uh, there'll be opportunities for you to distribute but I'm, I need points at you. And he's like, whatever it takes. And so uh, he played amazing as he always does. And, uh, and Sherman Hamilton was rock solid at the line and, and secured it. And um, all of a sudden 
you know, we make it to the uh, the final against the United States, and we we play them pretty tough in the in the first half. But the ultimate goal was to make it to that final game, and there was so much pride in in setting out in a, a mission and working all summer and and traveling and going all across the world with an opportunity, and then it coming down to to 40 minutes, and then and then getting it done. And then we had so much to look forward to. You know, the whole next season, wherever everyone played, we all found our spots whether it was in the nba or whether it was in europe and then we knew that we had so much to play for uh, the following summer so it was such a such a bond that we still share in a really special group of guys that was really willing to do whatever it took they didn't care who scored they didn't as long as people were rebounding taking charges and doing things like that uh, putting in the dirty work and you know that, that international game it can be different than the collegiate game. It can be, you know, different than the NBA. And so you never know which referees are going to be uh, calling the game and, and what style it's going to be. And so you have to really just be able to adapt to, you know, how that game's going to be. And, and even though we didn't have a lot of NBA players on our roster, we had seasoned veterans, guys that played in Europe and were tough and they were, you know, they were men. And so they were not, uh, they were not afraid of anybody. Yeah. I mean, it, it was an incredible feat for you guys to get to the Olympics and then play as well as you did in those uh, Olympic games. But yeah, you talked about the immense pressure in that game against Puerto Rico in Puerto Rico. And, and this, this Canadian national team, considering the previous failures in 2015 and, and 2021 and man, how close they were and to be down 12 points going into the fourth quarter. I, I, and I, I, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure, but I, I can tell you a lot of basketball fans in this country felt the same way that it just felt like it was all happening again. But the difference, Todd, is that there is, like, there's no Steve Nash on this team. There's a guy that's pretty damn close and, and got MVP uh, votes last year playing for the Thunder and Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And I don't know if you saw the broadcast yesterday, but Steve w- was on the pregame show talking about the level of play that Shea is at and comparing it to himself and, and understanding the mentality that he has and, and it being similar to himself. I mean... And I don't know how carefully you've been watching all these games, but it does feel like Team Canada has a superstar to to the level of maybe not Steve Nash, who's one of the greatest of all time and is an MVP, but like to have arguably the best player in this tournament be a Canadian is, is an incredible thing, something that you, you've had because I think Steve won the MVP award in the Tournament of the Americas in 99. Yeah, I think he, I think he did too. And like you said, I think it's really important to have that. You need to have that that leadership and that belief, and to think, okay, we have the talent, we can get this done. And and somebody, uh, you know, like Steve or like Shay, that's not going to buckle under pressure, that sees the situation. Okay, we're down twelve. You know, there's still time on the clock. Never quit. Never say die. And that's exactly what it took. And so. You know, they could have hung their heads and said, well, you know, we tried, but uh, we're going up, up against the number one ranked team basketball country in the world right now. And it's just not our time, but they never quit. They play through the final buzzer and they play calm, cool and collected. And they, they give the effort on defense. And if you if you do that, you're going to give your chance. You're going to give yourself a chance to win games. And then you need you need guys to step up and hit shots. And he's obviously uh, somebody that can do that. And R.J. Barrett with uh, with huge shots and just the way they the way they move the ball, they they give up the ball if, if someone has a you know has a has a better look. So they play very unselfishly, and it's it just uh, makes me very proud to see uh, not only how well they're doing, but but the way they've been doing it. And, and like you said, I think you need uh, you know if you can have anyone that's uh, Steve Nash like, uh, that's going to increase your and it's just going to raise the level. And if you have the ability to score the way 
Shea does, but also, uh, you know, you're going to take so much um, attention from the defense and then with his court vision, able to see where that help is coming from and then to distribute and be unselfish and also be um, talented enough to score yourself or find the open man uh, is why he's so tough to guard. And I, I would have hated to guard somebody like that. I think all of, all of the people charged with slowing him down uh, have a huge task on their hands. So, Todd, we're still trying to figure out um, or wrap our heads around the significance of this event because it was almost like, yeah, the, the, the World Cup of Basketball was talked about in terms of qualifying for the Olympics, right? And, and now that that goal is behind us, now, yeah, we have to think about medals and, and maybe a gold medal and, and this semifinal game against Serbia tomorrow. You, you played in, in, in different iterations, uh, almost 100 games uh, as a member of, of Team Canada. Can you compare these FIBA events to, to the Olympics and, and, and not only just how they felt as far as the import, but like the way the rest of the world feels about it? Because I've heard from so many people that the World Cup of Basketball, and I know it's gone through different iterations and name changes and like format changes over the years, but like that this is the number one to, to most basketball countries. Yeah, this is a this is a massive uh, massive event, and that you know the name change might might throw people off, but I you know I think ultimately it's a it's a good one because it really is a true World Cup, and the, the game is is so international, and there's you know so many players from each country uh, in the NBA, and, and obviously Canada is well represented, so I think they have a great opportunity. I think I think you you can adjust your your goals on the fly, and obviously goal one was let's get to let's get to Paris, and let's let's at least get that done, and now that that's done. Now, uh, why not go out and win this? They can play with anybody uh, in this tournament. No one is, you know, blowing everybody out by by thirty. It's not the it's not the ninety two uh, dream team. So you have to believe that uh, that they can go all the way. And so they they checked the box and they completed goal number one. So they might as well go try and and win it. Be the uh, you know, at least for this tournament, be the best country in the world at basketball. They're they're right there. Yeah, and this is, I mean, it, it, it's been such a long time coming because this country has produced the most NBA players outside of the United States here for a while. It's obviously not the case when, when you were playing in 99 and, and 2000. What was it like to be a Canadian, not just a Canadian, but from freaking Winnipeg <laughs> in the early 2000s, Todd, compared to the state of Canadian basketball right now? Like, what, how did you feel being one of the, the very few Canadians in the NBA? Um, I had a lot of I had a lot of pride in it, and it uh, you know if 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 in any way um, just you know that the fact that Steve and I were were in the NBA, I had a lot of pride that I am good enough to play in this league that that Steve is in, and obviously Steve was is at another level and started out being an All Star, and then obviously with a two time MVP, literally the best player in the NBA. But I had a lot of pride um, in. Uh, in being an NBA player, and I think that actually that tournament of the Americas had a lot to to do with uh, uh, with my my NBA career. I had been drafted by the Sixers a couple a uh, couple months uh, previous, and Larry Brown was the coach of the Sixers, and he was also the coach of the Dream Team that year. And and I was playing well in the tournament. Uh, once you know, once Steve and and the guys helped me get my confidence back, I think I led or was leading the tournament in rebounding. And did not play well uh, in the Puerto Rico game, but fortunately, you know, other guys did. We got the job done. And then in the uh, in the game against the U.S., I think we lost by 27 or, or 28. You know, hung with them pretty well in the first half. Um, game, um, you know, game ended, and and I don't know what it's like now, but back then, no one was handing out. Um, you know, stat sheets in the NBA, there was always a statute on your chair and you could immediately look at your stat line and see how did I do. 
And it kind of it seemed like in international basketball, did your country win? Did your country lose? And the individual things, you know, we just didn't, we weren't really privy to. And we get back to the uh, to the hotel room, and Pete Garashi said, hey, there's a message from your agent on the phone. And so I check it, and my agent said, hey, nice game. You had 22 points and 16 rebounds against the Dream Team. Uh, the Sixers <laughs> have offered you a, you know, a contract. You're a second-round pick, but uh, they can offer you a minimum contract. Welcome to the NBA. And I, it's my understanding that uh, before that game, they I was not really in their plans to be on the wow. roster. And so... I think the fact that, you know, we had taken care of business and we had punched our ticket and we had achieved our goal allowed me to go out and just have fun. And I, it taught me a real important lesson about, yes, you know, some games are more important than others, but somehow you've got to trick yourself into just realizing this is a game. It should be fun. Don't put too much internal pressure on yourself. And so when I felt no pressure and, uh, you know, Steve would have assisted on all of those, uh, all of those points. And you have somebody like that, it makes it that much easier, but it, you know, that the, the success that we were able to have as a team, you know, helped me in my NBA career and, and vice versa. I would have a, an NBA season and then and then be excited to go back and play for the national team. And and uh, it was just a really, a really good cycle. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll never forget those uh, those summers and those years and, and ultimately making it to the Olympics and making some noise and, and really on a trajectory where we, you know, you really can't lose that quarterfinal game. You know, if you make it to the medal round, you get a, a couple shots at, a, you know, the gold and silver if you you, you end up in the third place game. You have another chance in the middle, but that crossover game, uh, unfortunately, that's the one you can't afford to lose. And that French team was very good, and, uh, and that was a that was a tough one. So I'd love to have that one back. Yeah, but it was an incredible accomplishment uh, for you guys to get there and then play as well. Like I said, as you did, uh, and, a, and a pretty accomplished uh, French team. All right, that was enough basketball for a second because you have an entire section of your Wikipedia page called Pinball Career, Todd. Uh, and I, like, I was reading some of the articles that it references, and a lot of them are old, but yeah, that you played in the pinball world championships. What's the state of your pinball right now? Well, it's, it's funny you mention it. I'm just, uh, just at Walt's market here on uh, Bainbridge Island. So I'm a little bit of a, a hobby operator. So I, I was, uh, you know, cleaning down my play fields. And since I'm not a great technician, I, I have a friend here with his uh, expertise in toolbox and he's, he's fixing my machines for me. So I just uh, stepped out to the, to the car to have a, talk with you so we we hit one of my locations and then we're hitting another one and then we're going to head home he's going to fix my machines there so uh played in the uh actually hosted the world championships of pinball at our home here on Bainbridge island back in uh, 2012 so uh played played in that one uh, played in the world championships over in england i played in the european pinball championships i uh i tried to uh uh, we just finished the Bremerton Pinball League uh, team finals, and we uh, we won the North Division and uh, and took second in the final. So the bottom line is it's a game, and and it's really just about being around people that uh, also enjoy the game and you know having some having some fun. So it's as a competitive person, I obviously can't replace the feeling of playing in front of 15, 20,000 people and going to the Olympics, those are just off the table now. So the next best thing is to, uh, to play competitive pinball in a game that's fun and, and it matters, but it doesn't matter. And that's the whole, uh, that's the whole point. So I don't know there's something, uh, I think there's actually a lot of comparisons. I've just been thinking about it compared to basketball, you know, accuracy, being able to put the ball into the basket and being able to shoot the pinball uh, where you want it to go. Um, you know, rebounding your defense when the ball gets close to that drain, you know, there's a bunch of, there's different skills you need to either keep it from going in there. Um, and there's all sorts of passes. So I've, I've tried to think of some of the similarities and, and why the game has, uh, has gotten a hold of me so much, but it, uh, it's gotten into my blood and I, 
I joke that I try and give people an STPD, a socially transmitted pinball disease. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I got a couple of converts yesterday. We were having our, our roof done and the, and the owner of the company came to the door with a, with a guy. He said, I said, Hey, you know, one of these times schedule, you know, when you come for an inspection, come play some pinball. And he said, I'll, I'll do that. You know, when the job's done, but there's a, one of my employees, he, you know, he saw one of the games in the background of a photo and it's his favorite game. And I said, bring him. So he brought some of the door. I said, is this the guy? And he said, no, this isn't the guy. I was like, do you like pinball? He said, yes. I was like, let's go. So we spent a couple hours down there, and they're like, I had no idea this was so much fun. I'm like, exactly. That's why I brought you down here, so I could show you this is what I'm crazy about. So it's a, I don't know, it's a silly game, but when people see how complex and how how many rules and layers and, and how much strategy there is, people are really surprised. And I love opening people's eyes to the complexities and also the simplicity if you want to keep it that way. So to me, it's a near perfect game. Okay, Todd, I wish I'd, I'd, I'd asked you about pinball earlier because I wish we had more time to, to talk about it because <laughs> now, like my, my I, w- I feel like I would love pinball. I enjoy pinball in the limited times that I play. I have no idea. I'm just hammering the buttons, right? Like and I can maybe like cradle the ball a little bit and, and shoot it in one direction. I, I need to understand the strategy of pinball. Like, where did you learn this from? And we only got a couple of minutes, but, like, who who taught you the finer points of pinball? Uh, I, I guess it's my friend, uh, my friend Bowen Karens. He's a five-time uh, world champion. And I guess the nice thing, actually, you know, I know you don't have a lot of time, but he's a, he, he lives in Boston. And when I was doing radio, uh, someone said, hey, Bowen's in Boston. He's really nice. So I reached out and I said, hey, I, you, you, I don't know if you know me. Uh, I work for the Sixers. I do radio. And I wonder if I could exchange some of my tickets for you to come to the game if you would show me a few things. And uh, and we did. He came to the game, and he's like, I have to apologize. I booed you when you were in net. I said, that's okay. I don't, I don't mind. And uh, he kind of took me under his wing and taught me. If, and, and he's literally, you know, it's he's like the Michael Jordan or the LeBron of uh, – of pinball and so to have a friend like that and i guess the nice thing about this hobby is just how approachable everyone is how unentitled they are how little the prize money is so the egos are just so in check um and so he really showed me the ropes and uh, and helped me get better and so then i've just kind of been hooked and i'm trying to expose other people to it um and hopefully it brings them as much joy as it does to me and so we're we're turning bainbridge island into a little bit of a pinball island and i i may have a little something to do with that uh that is awesome <laughs> Todd, I, I, w- I would love to, to, to play pinball at one of your locations. When you're, when you're in Seattle, well, you, my best stuff's at home. So, uh, so when you're in Seattle, you got my number. Just drop me a line, and there's nothing <laughs> I'd rather do than, uh, than, than show you the ropes and kind of open your eyes to, uh, to the game. So next time you're on the West Coast, please drop me a line, I, and I do mean that. I, I absolutely will. Todd, uh, this was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for doing this. All right, thanks for the time. We'll uh, we'll see you when you're out here on vacation. <laughs> Sounds good, Todd. Uh, there's Todd McCullough, former uh, Sixer, former Net, Team Canada player, pinball enthusiast, former World Championship of pinball player. I, I hand up, okay. Honesty time. I had no idea there was such a thing as competitive pinball, and in fact, I viewed the game as more luck based. Like almost, it almost feels like roulette or something. Like how do you stop it when the ball's going right down the middle? I guess some of the machines have like the pin in the middle where you don't get totally screwed, but do they all have that? I just, I, I had way more questions for Todd. I, I'm all right. I'm gonna finish the show, and I'm gonna go track down some features producer here for Sportsnet, and and we're gonna convince somebody to fly us out to Seattle to do a feature on Todd McCullough, former NBA player turned pinball wizard, uh, expected on Sportsnet in, in 
I don't know, the coming months because I, I have a lot of time for learning about pinball. That was that was great stuff. And and thanks to Todd for uh, joining me today. And yeah, eloquent guy as well, obviously. All right. Speaking of eloquent guys, how about two of them for another two hours? Blair and Barker getting you set for the last of these series against sub 500 teams. Royals before the series of the season starts on Monday for against the Rangers. I'll be back tomorrow. I'm Ben Ennis. This has been the Fan Drive Time. Sportsnet 590 The Fan.